0: A contemporary christian group named Babylon sings a song called everything to me and lately the song has been ministering to my heart i've listened to it over and over again almost every day and the song speaks of someone who was raised in church knew all the right answers memorized scripture and all of that and then one day everything changed and the song says that now jesus is more than a story more than words on the page of history and i love that song because it could be the story of my life i mean i was raised in church memorized scripture i I knew the story. And in a way, I always I always believed the story. I mean, I, I can't remember a time where I ever didn't think that the Bible was true and that Jesus was God's Son. But it was, I believed it the same way I believed that Abraham Lincoln was president. It was something I knew about, but it had no real impact on my day-to-day life. I never really gave it a lot of thought on the fact that if someone were to ask, is it true, I would have said yes. But then one day I met Jesus and everything changed. Now I can say with certainty that Jesus is not a story. That I know, but he's a person I love. Jesus is not a story I tell to others. He's a person I seek to introduce to others. And today, if you don't know Jesus, I want to do everything I can this morning to try to introduce you to him. And I know that some that don't know Jesus, they have doubts. Doubts about Jesus, doubts about the Bible, doubts about the church. And and I understand that, and I'm going to try to address some of those today. But I want to be up front with you about what I'm doing here this morning. I'm not trying to entertain you. I'm not trying to tell you a snazzy story. Instead, I'm going to do my dead-level best to introduce you to the person who means the most to me in the world and has changed my life completely. At the end of the service, I'm going to call upon you to turn from your sins and turn to Jesus. I'm going to urge you to place your hope, your faith, and your trust in Jesus. And I do this confident that once you have met Jesus, your doubts will dissipate and everything else will change in your life. So this morning... We're going to start, we're going to look in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 24. That's page 829, 828 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'll ask you to stand to on the reading of God's Word. John 20 and 24. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst of them and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Title of the message this morning is moving from doubt to faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. God, You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our, our, our devotion. God, You are wonderful and awesome and You have done so very much for us in our lives. And we rejoice today at what this day represents. Father, we rejoice in the fact that You loved us while we were yet sinners and sent Christ to die for us. We rejoice today, God, that Jesus did not stay dead, but He did rise from the grave. And because of that, we can be certain that He is who He said He was and He can do what He said He could do. We rejoice today because we can know him and because we have opportunities to make him known to others. Father, today I ask you to work in our hearts and to work in our lives. Help us to lay aside the cares of life and anything else that we may have brought in. And let us have this just this short amount of time to be fully focused upon you. Father, we ask you to send your spirit to, to give us clarity, to give us focus, to give us ears to hear that we might receive your word. We ask You, Father, to let Your Spirit work in our hearts and, and show us things that we need to know. Deal with us about things that we need to change. Father, I ask You to do a mighty work in each of our hearts today. Encourage those that might be discouraged. Strengthen those that might be weak. Restore those that, have might, that might have slidden back in their relationship with You. And if there would be any that they have doubts and they do not know Jesus as their Savior, that today would be the day that You would move them from doubt to faith. Save them as only you can. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me not to be hindrance in any way to what you want done in our midst today. We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. In the passage where we're studying this morning, it is Resurrection Sunday. Jesus has died. And now, some had gone to the tomb to fix his body for completely for burial. And they found that the body was missing. Some of those who had gone to find the body missing and the other disciples had even claimed to have seen Jesus after he was dead. But then there's Thomas. Thomas was not one to believe things quickly. He was not one to believe just anything. That's why a lot of times the unofficial nickname of Thomas is called Doubting Thomas. And we see these doubts at the very first of verse 25. After being told that Jesus has risen and the other disciples have seen him, Thomas replies, unless I see the Lord, unless I see his hands and, his, and put my finger in there, there is no way I'm going to believe it. But the doubts that Thomas have at the start of of this passage are not there when we get to the end at verse 28 when he cries out my Lord and my God and what had made the difference in Thomas was verse 27 when he met Jesus. So the main thing I want you to understand today is that meeting Jesus moves us from doubt to faith. Meeting Jesus moves us from doubt to faith. Now how can we meet the risen Christ so that we can move from doubt to faith? And I want to show you four Four ways from this morning. Number one, be honest about my doubts. Be honest about my doubts. At times, Christians have, have shamed people who express their doubts about Christianity. And this, I believe, is wrong. People often have legitimate doubts. And when you preach a salvation that is by faith, well, doubts can be a major problem. When doubts are shamed, they'll be hidden They'll become full-blown unbelief, and many times they'll even become a, a bitter anger at the idea of Christianity. Rather than being shamed for their doubts, people should be encouraged to be honest about their doubts, because their doubts are real. I mean, the doubts have to be dealt with before someone will ever come to faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. And there are, there are answers. There are answers for the doubts. And there are probably several areas in which people wrestle with doubts, things like creation, the inspiration, authority and reliability of Scripture, sexuality, morality, and and the church, just to name a few. And there are good answers associated with all of these issues, but those aren't the ones we're going to discuss today. And while these issues are real and while they're important issues, they are not the main issue that has to be nailed down when you try to talk about Christianity The main issue that must be resolved is Jesus. Who is He? What did He do? Why is He important? Because there are few, very few, who deny the existence of a guy named Jesus. There are few who deny that He lived in roughly the times that the Bible describes. There are few who deny that at some point, He was murdered by the Romans. And there were even few who would deny that somehow and in some way, the tomb itself that he was laid in was empty. So what happened to the body of Jesus? Now, the Bible says that he rose from the dead. Is there any truth to that claim? Or is it just a faith event that's true because we believe it? And as long as it makes me feel good, that's enough. Or is there a real factual basis? Can we really trust that Jesus really did rise from the dead? That just as certainly as there was a president named Abraham Lincoln, there was a guy named Christ that was crucified for the sins of the world and rose again on the third day. I mean, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then what happened to the body? Why was the tomb empty? Now, these are the same sorts of questions the apostles were having to to wrestle with in John chapter 20. John 20 is John's account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mary Magdalene had gone to the tomb and found the body of the Lord Jesus missing. She went back and told Peter and John, who ran out to check, and lo and behold, it was missing, just like she said. They left and went back to tell everybody else what was going on. And Jesus appeared to her and told her to go tell them that he was indeed risen. And they were curious about it and wondering about it and gathered together, hiding from the Jews when Jesus appeared in their midst and said, here I am. I'm alive. So they rejoiced and they were excited and they were ready to serve Jesus. But they weren't all with him. Thomas, our dear doubting Thomas, was not there at the time. And so... In verse 24 and 25, the disciples tell Thomas, it's true. He is risen from the dead. We saw him. And Thomas simply dismisses it out of hand. Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I find that to be kind of amazing. Because Thomas was an apostle. Thomas had been with Jesus for the last three and a half years or so. Thomas had seen Jesus heal lepers. Thomas had seen Jesus cause the lame to walk. Thomas had seen Jesus take just a, a little bit of food and multiply it to feed thousands and thousands of people. Thomas had seen Jesus, cause the blind to see. Thomas had even seen Jesus raise other people that were dead back to life. And yet Thomas did not believe that Jesus himself had risen. When told that Christ was risen from the dead and others had seen him, Thomas, who had seen all of the miracles of Christ, said, no way. I'll believe it when I see Him for myself. And there are a lot of people today in our society, that are a lot like Thomas. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, the, the verdict of the vast majority of our world is just, I don't believe it. It's unrealistic. It's not possible. It's just not true. And so being able to explain away the resurrection... By natural means is a critical factor to disproving Christianity. For as I said, there are no real credible historians or investigators who would deny the existence of Christ. There are no real credible investigators or historians who deny the the death of Christ. The body. What happened to him after death. Now that is the issue. So what did happen? What are some natural explanations to what happened to the body of Jesus. Well, there's actually quite a few. One is He didn't really die. On the cross, Jesus swooned and passed out from exhaustion and later He was resuscitated by the disciples and they mistook this for a physical bodily resurrection. Or perhaps the body was stolen. Perhaps the the Roman or Jewish authorities stole the body. Maybe the disciples stole the body to perpetrate a scam on the world. But regardless of who stole it, That would explain for an empty tomb. How about a mistake at the tomb? Mary went to the wrong tomb. Instead of going to the tomb where Jesus was laid, she went to one that was unused. And there you have it. That's why the tomb seemed empty. Perhaps there was no actual visit to the tomb. Perhaps the disciples remembered the words of Jesus that after three days He would rise again. And so they just began to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ as though it were fact when they never even went to visit. They didn't even really check because it was a a spiritual thing. It was a faith event. They believed it and that belief confirmed it. They never checked to check to see what happened to the body. And really, I guess, having doubts about the resurrection is understandable when you think about it. Someone who had seen Jesus with his own eyes and all that he had done. If he doubted, we who are thousands of years removed from that time, it would be easy to have doubts of our own. Particularly since there seem to be many ways to explain the empty tomb apart from a risen Christ. And it's okay to be honest about our doubts. But let's not stop there. Not only do you want to be honest about your doubts, you want to question your doubts. Question my doubts. See, just because you have doubts, and just because you should be honest about your doubts, that doesn't make your doubts true. It just means they're legitimate doubts. One of the many things we have to question about our doubts is why we have them. I mean, sometimes our doubts are legit. Right? The Bible says the world works in one way. The way we understand the world, it works in a completely different way. And so we can't reconcile the differences. How do I reconcile the way I understand the world to work with what the Bible says is true and actually happened? Those are legitimate doubts. A person like that is an honest doubter. But that's not always the case. In fact, the Bible says that some people reject Jesus because they love darkness more than light. And there's a lot that goes into that. But some of what it means is they love their sin more than they love the Savior. Like a, a person who, who loves darkness more than light, they may not really have any legitimate doubts, but there's a way that they're living that they know is contrary to what the Bible says, and they're not willing or ready to give that up. And so they'll say, I just don't believe. They love darkness more than light. Some people who doubt, they love their own self-righteousness more than they love the idea of salvation. because salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. It requires us to acknowledge that we have sinned against God. That we are legitimately guilty. And that we deserve the wrath of God that was shown on the cross. But boy, that's that's an awful hard thought if I think I'm a pretty good old boy. And so, I don't have a legitimate doubt about Scripture. I just refuse to say those things about myself. I just refuse to embrace those things and say that I am a sinner in need of a savior I love darkness more than they love light. So the question I want to ask you right now is, why, why do you doubt the claims of Jesus? But if you're an honest doubter, then I'm going to ask you to question your doubts about Jesus for the next few minutes. And I'm going to ask you to do this based upon the words of Jesus. I love this verse. Look at what Jesus says. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or merely my own. So basically, here's what Jesus is saying. Someone really wants to know the truth. If they really and truly want to know if Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who died for our sins and rose again, you can know for sure. There is, however, a condition. You must be willing to do God's will. right? This means you must be an honest doubter. You have to be the kind of person who would say, I don't believe. And I have very real doubts. But if it turned out that that stuff was all true, then I would embrace it. And I would live for Jesus. So here's what I want to do right now. I want us to stop and pray. And we're going to pray for God to help us to question our doubts. And I'm going to pray... God would help any that have doubts in here to question their doubts. And I want you to pray as well. If you have doubts and you have issues that you can't reconcile, I want you to spend this time praying as well. And you can pray a prayer like this. Oh God, show me whether Jesus is your Son or not. And if you show me that He is, I promise to accept Him as my Savior and confess Him as such for the world. So let's pray. Father, we love you. And God, you are great and worthy and awesome. And God, the Bible is true. And Jesus is risen From the dead. Father, in here today, there may well be some that have legitimate doubts. They have honest questions that they cannot reconcile. And right now, I ask you to work in their hearts, to work in their lives, to alleviate those doubts. I ask you to move them today from doubt to faith. I ask you to help them to see that the Bible is true. Help them to see that Jesus is your son. Help them to see the salvation that's available through him. And God, move them. As you move them from doubt to faith, bring them to the place where they would surrender to Christ. They would be saved and everything would be changed because they knew him. Father, we know that you're active in our world today. We know that every person in here is someone for whom Christ died and for someone that you want to save. And so today, work in each heart, work in each life. Let us all leave here firmly convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who died for the sins of the world and rose again on the third day, that he is our Lord and our God. Amen. Now let's check in on our doubting Thomas. We see in verse 26, it's about a little over a week after the resurrection. The disciples are again gathered together, locked up in a room, hiding. And Jesus once again appears in the midst of them and says, peace to you. Now imagine that was a shock to Thomas who had just denied about eight days earlier that Jesus had risen from the dead. But what Jesus does next, I think, is Great, And probably was a shock as well. Look at what he says. Reach your finger in here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. You know what what Jesus did there? He extended to Thomas the offer of investigation. Thomas, here I am. Do whatever you need to do. Check it out. Be sure, Thomas. Because I really am risen from the dead. It really is me. He, he gave him the offer to come and check it out. Now, the offer to investigate whether or not the resurrection is true has always been there. Right? Look at Matthew's account of the resurrection. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone of the door and sat on it. And then when women came, he said, he is not here for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. Now, in the passage we just looked at, in verse 26 and in other verses, Jesus just appeared in the middle of a room, but he didn't walk through the door. He didn't open it up and go through. He just appeared. So the angels they didn't roll the stone away to let Jesus out. That's not what happened. They rolled the stone away to let others come in. They rolled the stone away so that others could come in and look around, and they offered themselves, "Come and see, come and look." Come and look and see where He was and see for yourself that the tomb is empty and that the Savior has risen. The offer to investigate the claim of the resurrection is there for us as well. If the resurrection is true, then investigation will only confirm that fact. The truth never needs to fear investigation. Only a lie. Why? Well, because... Investigation into the truth confirms the truth. Investigation into a lie reveals a lie. Jesus has really risen from the dead. Then investigation into that would only prove it to be true. So what about those natural answers that explain an empty tomb without there needing to be a risen Lord? He didn't really die. But did he really die on the cross? Well, let's think through what we know. He had lost a lot of the blood, a lot of his blood, by the time he cried out and yielded up the ghost in Matthew 27 and 50. And think about all that he had endured on the cross, or all that he endured before the cross. He was beaten badly by Romans. He was scourged. And many people in the Roman days, they died from the scourging alone. And then when he went to the cross, he was had a crown of thorns placed upon his head. And as he was put on the cross, he was nailed there. So he had massive bodily damage by the time the cross was set upright for him to begin suffering. And he hung on the cross from about nine in the morning to just before sunset. The Bible also tells us that when his side was pierced, we're told that blood and water flowed out in John 19 and 33. And this is a a medical sign of death indicating that the red and the white corpuscles had separated The Roman soldiers who crucified people every day of their lives, they concluded Jesus to be dead without having to break his legs as they normally did to hasten death. According to the customs of the day, Jesus was hurriedly embalmed in about a hundred pounds of spices and bandages and laid in a guarded tomb. Even if he had resuscitated, he could not have rolled back the heavy stone, overcome the guards and escaped on his own. If after the beatings, the crucifixion, the hang on the cross for many hours and the piercing of his side, he still managed to somehow be alive, he certainly would not have appeared to be someone who had conquered death on behalf of all mankind. His appearing to the disciples in this fashion would not have changed them from the fearful disciples that ran when Jesus was arrested to those who. Who boldly preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and his resurrection and when told to stop said we must obey God rather than men. Doesn't appear the idea that Jesus didn't die can't satisfactorily answer the question of what happened to the body. So maybe the body was stolen. The body snatchers explain the empty tomb. Well, there were two groups. That are basically considered to have done it. The authorities. right? Roman or Jewish authorities. Did the authorities of the day. Take the body and hide it. I mean after all. Jesus had said. He was going to rise from the dead. And apparently some people knew it. That's why they wanted guards there. And maybe, maybe the Roman authorities. The Jewish authorities. What they did was. They went and they took it. So the disciples couldn't take it. And that way. They could the disciples couldn't take it, hide it, and say the body or that Jesus had risen from the dead. That would explain an empty tomb. But the problem with that is that the disciples did preach a risen Christ. And what would the Roman authorities or the Jewish authorities had to have done to shut that up? Gone to where they hid the body of Jesus, brought it out to the town square, and flung it on the ground. And at that point Christianity would have been shut down for good. Really, when you read the book of Acts, one of the things to take notice of is how did the religious leaders respond to the preaching of the risen Christ? Did they say that deceiver is dead? He never rose. No, they never once denied that fact themselves. They just said, shut up talking about it. They never even disagreed with the apostles. When they said that Jesus was risen. So it doesn't seem like they stole the body. What about the disciples? Did the disciples steal the body and then pretend that he rose from the dead? Now, let's keep in mind who we're talking about here. The twelve disciples weren't often the cleverest guys in the bunch. How many times did Jesus have to say to them something like, Are you so dull that you don't understand that either? If they did it, then what we have to believe is that one, they, they came up with a plan. They they mounted an assault on Roman guards. They stole the body, and then they began to preach something they knew to be a lie. Well, they didn't seem to be all that clever most of the time. They ran when Jesus was arrested, so I'm not sure how coming up with a plan to lie to everybody suddenly filled them with courage to attack armed guards. And if it were true that they stole the body, then we'd have to believe, contrary to psychological fact, that they died for what they knew to be false. They were transformed from cowards to courageous men in a few weeks by a deceptive plot that enabled them to turn the world upside down. It doesn't seem very likely. So that doesn't seem to be able to explain for the empty tomb. What about a mistake at the tomb? It's early in the morning. Maybe the, the women... Went to the wrong tomb. It was dark and they just didn't see. But if it was so dark and so early that they would go to the wrong tomb, why did Mary assume that Jesus, when she saw Him, was first the gardener? Why would the gardener be at work in the dark? But if this is true and that Mary and the other women went to the wrong tomb, we have to assume that the disciples also went to the wrong tomb. But interestingly enough, not only would they have had to have gone to the wrong tomb, they would have had to have gone to the same wrong tomb that Mary and the other women did. How do we know that? Because they found a tomb in the exact same condition that the women found. They found a tomb with grave clothes in it and no body. So they would have had to have made the exact same mistake. And finally, if by some astronomical chance, this did occur. And that would mean that Jesus is still in his tomb. And that provides an out for the Roman and the Jewish authorities. Because all they then had to do was go to the right tomb. Drag out the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, toss it in the middle of town square, crush Christianity before it ever has a chance to get started. But it didn't happen. So we can't accept the idea that they all went to the wrong tomb. Perhaps there was no actual visit to the tomb. Maybe the resurrection was just meant to be something that was a faith event. No real basis in history or fact or. Anything that actually happened. The spirit of Jesus has risen and encourages us now. But the body of Jesus still lies somewhere in in a, in a tomb. For that to happen, we have to reject all the gospel accounts. Because all the gospel accounts say that there were visits to the tomb. But even if we did reject the gospel record, there's still the question of why didn't the Jewish authorities do what the disciples did? Why didn't they go to the tomb? Why didn't they drag out the body? Why didn't they end Christianity in the first century when they wanted to so desperately? They couldn't, so they didn't, because there was a visit to the tomb. The idea that there was no visit to the tomb it can't explain the empty tomb. And it's interesting because many, many doubters in the world are critical of Christians who are not willing to question their beliefs. They say we don't question our beliefs because we're afraid of what we might find. We might find that what we believe is a lie and our lives will be destroyed. But I contend that many doubters are scared to question their doubts for the exact same reason. They're afraid of what they will find as they begin to explore. Because Jesus is real. And He really did die on the cross for our sins. And He really did rise from the dead and. And meeting Jesus, understanding these facts, tends to destroy doubts. There are more than one skeptic who set out to destroy Christianity by seeking to disprove the resurrection of Christ, who at the end concluded, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. You read The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. That's exactly what he was. An atheist, an investigative reporter, who was married to a Christian that he wanted to shut up and make her quit inviting him to church. And so he was going to investigate just like he did other things, prove the resurrection was false, destroy her faith, and go on with their happy marriage without Jesus. He is now an apologist for Christianity. He is been on staff at several churches in the country and is a very, very prolific writer encouraging the truth of Christianity. Jesus messed up His plans because when He investigated the truth, He found Christ. Question your doubts. Be honest with them. They're there. But don't just assume they're true. Question them. Why do you have them? What did happen to the body of Jesus? Thirdly, respond to Jesus in faith. See, it's going to eventually, it's always going to take time. It's going to come to the place where we have to have faith. Faith is always a part of it. And the reason that I focused on doubts about the resurrection is because that's the key to it all. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis... If Jesus Christ did not die on the cross for our sins, and He did not rise from the dead, then He is of no importance whatsoever. If, on the other hand, Jesus Christ did die on the cross for our sins, and He did rise from the dead, then He is the most important person that has ever walked the face of the earth. He is of supreme importance in our life. The only thing Jesus cannot legitimately be is moderately important. Everything rises and falls on Jesus, his death and his resurrection. And this is what the Bible explains to us. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of Christ is the greatest proof that he died on the cross for our sins and not as the martyr for a cause. Keep in mind, Romans killed an awful lot of people in the days that they ruled the world. They crucified hundreds of thousands of people. They crucified thousands upon thousands of Jews in the time that they ruled over Judea. Gosh, in the Bible accounts, there were at least two other Jews that were crucified on the day that Jesus was. So what makes him significant? Why is He different than the others? It's because He rose from the dead, never to die again. And because He rose from the dead, we can be certain that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And since He is the Son of the living God, He is the Christ who died for our sins and rose again. We should respond to Him in the way that Thomas did in verse 28. My Lord and my God. It's a great confession of faith. Thomas is no longer a doubter. His response to the truth of who Jesus was and what Jesus had done, it changed his life forever. He confessed Jesus as Lord. He lived for Christ the rest of his life. It was a confession of the Lordship and the deity and the supremacy of Christ. It was a determination that he would live for Jesus from that point on. And from all that we know from church history, it's exactly what he did. He died as a martyr, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's important to notice that Thomas said, my Lord and my God. because You see, once Thomas was convinced the evidence was true and that Jesus did rise from the dead, he had to make a personal decision to receive Jesus Christ as his Lord and his God. It wasn't enough that the apostles believed. He had to confess. He had to believe. See, it's the same with us. There's a personal decision that each one of us has to make. And it is, it is your decision alone. It is my decision alone. But right? it's not enough that we have Christian parents. It's not enough that we have Christian grandparents or Christian spouse. It's not enough that we go to church and have been baptized. It's not enough that we're a member of a church. There has to come a point in our life where we decide that Jesus is my Lord and my God. And that is my decision. And that is your decision. And no one can ever make that for you. Joshua told the Israelites before he died, choose this day whom you will serve. It's exactly the decision that's laid before each and every one of us. Choose who you will serve. And when you choose Jesus, it changes everything. And then the final final thought that we have in this passage is that we experience the blessings of Jesus. What happens when we respond to faith in Jesus? He pours out His blessings upon us. Look at what He says to Thomas. Because you have seen Me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas believed when he saw Jesus physically risen from the dead. He didn't touch Him. He believed when he saw Him, but he had to see Jesus said that that was good, but it would have been better if he had just believed the truth without having to see. And he said that those who believe but have not seen, they are the ones who will be blessed. Well, that would, that would be us, by the way. No one, none of us have, have seen Christ, but we have heard the truth, and we've heard the gospel, and we have read the Bible. And the Holy Spirit has worked in our hearts and has convinced us that these things are true. And those who believe in Jesus are blessed. What are the blessings we receive? Well, let me just give you a few. My sins are forgiven. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who, walk, who do not walk according to flesh, but according to the Spirit. I would love to take a lot of time to talk about that, but I just want you to focus on the idea of no condemnation. The believer in Jesus Christ will never be judged as a sinner. The believer in Jesus Christ is saved from the second death. The believer in Jesus Christ will never face the wrath of God. There is no condemnation. No matter our past, no matter our present, no matter anything. We are, our sins are forgiven. Freedom from slavery to sin. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. You know, many times we really try to make changes in our lives. We want to turn over a new leaf and fix issues that are going on in our life, and we just don't seem to be able to make it happen. The reason we can't change is because we're not able. Our sinful nature is stronger than we are naturally. We give into it. We follow it. And no matter what we do or how much we change on the outside, we can't change anything on the inside that frees us from this. Jesus, however, is able to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He gives us a new nature. He gives us His Holy Spirit. And we then have no obligation, no responsibility, and we can always resist our sinful nature. He gives us a hope that is greater than any suffering. Paul writes, for I consider the suffering this present time are not worthy to be compared, but the glory shall be revealed in us. What I like about this is that Paul wrote it. Right? Because Paul wasn't a guy that sat in an ivory tower and wrote down to the people in the trenches and said, hey, it'll be okay. You've got a big hope, buddy. You'll make it through. Paul, who wrote and said that the sufferings can't be compared to the glory It's the same Paul that was shipwrecked, bitten by a snake, beaten multiple times, stoned, cast out of a city, lost his friends, lost his reputation, lost his family. Paul's life after coming to Christ was so very difficult. But why did Paul keep going and not back down or shut up? Because the glory of the next life was greater than the suffering of this life. God adopts me. As his child. If you do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, may also be glorified together. Now, He adopts us and He makes us His own, changes everything about us, but the thing I want to point out is that the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. See, one of the, the blessings that Jesus pours out on us is a certainty of our salvation. That the believer in Jesus Christ that has embraced Him and holding on to Him fully, they know what will happen when this life's over. They might not have all the answers, and know all the not answer all the questions, but they know where they're going. They know that they're saved. There is no, no fear in death. As the song said, because in death we go to be with the one we have loved and the one who has saved us. Listen, if you were raised in church, you probably have an idea that you're saved and you may well be. But if you were raised in church and you're not saved, I would if I was a wagering person, I would wager that you have doubts about that often in your life. Probably not something you would tell others. Probably not something if I asked you would give the answer to. You would say, oh yes, I believe in Jesus and I'm saved. But when you watch certain news reports, you fear. In the night, in the darkness, if you're sick or see somebody else dies and it makes you think about eternity, you're afraid. That's That's not God's plan for your life. That's not the way that you're intended to live. Those that have been adopted as children have the Spirit of God living within them that confirms to them, yes, You are my son. Yes, you are my daughter. My friend, if you are fearful about your salvation, that doesn't necessarily mean you're lost. But it does mean something is not as it should be. The child of God that has been adopted by God can have certainty of their salvation. You also have a peace that cannot be comprehended. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. Our world's kind of a scary place at times. News reports aren't necessarily happy, things that are on the horizon don't look especially pleasing. And there ain't nothing we can do about it. It doesn't matter who you vote for next election, there's still going to be the same sorts of issues. It doesn't matter what Putin does, there's going to be problems. But we have to be fearful that so we have to live fretting and worrying what the economy is going to do, what will happen if there's war, what will happen if this goes on. Not for the believer in Jesus Christ, because one of the blessings we have is peace. So we can't control the future. And no, we don't know the future. But we are held. Strongly by the one who does know the future, we are led continuously by the one. Who does control the future. And there may be some fear and some concern. But anxiety, fear, sleeplessness, the ulcers that come from stressing over world events and what's going to happen this week. Those are not things that that are really known to the child of God. Because God gives them a peace that passes all understanding. And, And so much more. I could spend the rest of the day talking about the blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ. Today, it's important for you to understand that Jesus died for your sins, that He rose again. And if you believe this and call upon Him, you shall be saved. And the proof that Jesus has the power to forgive sins is shown in His resurrection from the dead. A believer in Jesus Christ today can have complete confidence, as did the first Christians, that His faith is based not on myth or legend, but on solid historical fact of the risen Christ in the empty tomb. This morning, if you have never personally prayed to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, please know that that's His great desire for you. That is what He wants for you more than anything. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This morning, the risen Lord offers you rest for your soul, relief from your burdens, remission of your sins, and a relationship with the God of heaven. But you must choose this. What decision will you make? Let's stand as our musicians come forward.